Recently, my wife and I have been chatting about getting a second car because apparently it's warmer than riding a bike in the morning. Um, So she says five words that every husband wants to hear from their wife. You should buy a ute which is really exciting for me. So I've been looking at Facebook Marketplace. I've been looking at carsales.com. And if you've ever looked for a second-hand car, you know there's two types of cars, yeah? The flashy one and the fruitful one. So there's the flashy one. That's the one that's usually coloured bright red or yellow. It's got the sound system. It's got the wheels. It's got the sunroof. It has high kilometres. It breaks down a lot, but it's really fun to drive. It's flashy, but it's not fruitful. Then you've got the fruitful ones, like a Toyota Corolla, right? Low mileage, no sound system. They never break down. The parts are really cheap. And they're the kind of car that in 10 years' time, it's still going, so you either have to give it away or just, like, park it in someone's paddock. I don't know. There's the fruitful. There's the flashy. I guess I want to ask you as we start in Mark chapter 11 tonight, what kind of car do you go for? Do you go for the flashy or do you go for the fruitful? You know, religion can be flashy as well. That was the question that I asked you in the break. I heard a bunch of people say, really, is it? Think about it. It can seem very impressive. Whether it's a deep piety, large cathedral robes, incense, a sacred space, Um, or if you're at the other end, uh, maybe it's large crowds, maybe it's the stadium experience of church, maybe it's a thumping band and a spiritual high. Uh, Religion can be flashy. If we define religion as people's way to get into God's good books, or people's way of staying in God's good books by what they do, although it looks impressive and feels spiritual, it's actually quite empty. It's vanity. It's fruitlessness. It's saying to God, the work of your son is not enough, and so I must supplement it. I must do add to it. Religion at that point actually represents a rejection of Jesus' death on the cross because we think we can add something to it. Religion is saying, thank you to God for what you have done and now here's my part as well. It's flashy, it might feel spiritual, but ultimately it is fruitless. In Mark chapter 11, God's King Jesus comes to his city in Jerusalem and he finds a flashy but fruitless temple. And so he judges it and he brings it to an end. But tonight I want to ask us, uh, okay, this isn't a temple, but if Jesus was to come to our church tonight, does Jesus want flashy religion or fruitful disciples? Does he want flashy religion or fruitful disciples? And Mark 11 is going to help us to answer that. You see, we've got a dived bomb into Mark's gospel, so let me give you some context. Mark's gospel is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 writes it so that we would know who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, Mark does this really interesting thing. In the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel... He focuses on the three years of Jesus' public ministry, 10 chapters, three years, 
And then he slows right down in, verse, in chapters 11 to 16. He spends six chapters on one week of Jesus' life. That is, Jesus' final week before he dies on the cross. You see, Mark wants us to slow down and look at the details. He wants us to look at the donkey and the fig tree and figure out what these things actually mean because when we understand what they mean, we understand who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross. And when you have understood what Jesus has done on the cross, it demands a response, demands that we follow him. So that's Mark's gospel. Three points tonight. God's king enters Jerusalem, God's king judges the temple, and God's king offers forgiveness. Ultimately, we'll see that Jesus doesn't want flashy religion but fruitful disciples. So first point, God's king enters Jerusalem. Have a look at verse 1 with me. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent his two disciples, sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. You see, it's Sunday before Passover, which means it's the Sunday before the death of Jesus. Jesus and his disciples set up home base in a town called Bethany just outside Jerusalem. It's like driving to Orange but staying in a little cute Airbnb in Millthorpe, right? And uh, this is the home base for Jesus and his disciples. Over the next couple of chapters, Jesus will leave there and enter Jerusalem and then go back again. In fact, in chapter 11, he does it three times. But what's special about this first time? Did you notice that Jesus is deeply involved in every detail? He wants to stage manage this entry into Jerusalem because when he does, it's going to make a really important statement. You see, 500 years before Jesus, God spoke through the prophet Zechariah. It should come up on the screen. Uh, God, through through the prophet Zechariah, said this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, he will proclaim peace to the nations. Can you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is so involved with the details of his entrance because Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from 500 years before. It tells us of who Jesus truly is. Jesus is God's king come to God's city. But Jesus is unlike any king you have ever seen before. You see, a politician would enter a city like this with a press conference, yeah? An army general would enter on a chariot. But Jesus, Jesus comes humble and lowly on a donkey because Jesus has come to serve. Jesus is the servant king who sacrifices himself for his people so they can have peace with God. And what stands out, it's not just his humility, it's also his righteousness, You see, Zechariah is a prophecy of the king who will save and the king who will judge. As God's king, Jesus will judge the nations and Israel with all righteousness. That is, the righteousness of God. Which is the first thing that Jesus will do when he comes into the city. Verse 11, where does he go? The temple. Now let's be honest, 
This is one of the great anticlimaxes of the Bible. Jesus rolls into Jerusalem with all this pageantry and fanfare. And then like a tourist, he goes to the temple, has a look at it, goes, yeah, good. Okay. And then goes home, does nothing, right? It's not till the second day that he comes back. And he comes back with a really important task. Again, from the Old Testament. Next slide. Uh, Malachi, 200 years before Jesus comes on the scene. God, through the prophet Malachi, says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can stand, endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. God, through the prophet Malachi, prophesies that when God's king comes to earth, when he comes to his city, he will go to the temple and he will judge the temple. It will be like a refiner's fire. How will Jesus judge? Well, that's why the fig tree is really important. So second point, God's king comes to judge. Have a look at verse 12 with me. The next day, as they, that's Jesus and the disciples, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then, uh, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, some find Jesus' actions here quite unreasonable. They might say, Jesus loses his temper. That's not the thing that Jesus do, does. Or, or why does Jesus get cranky at a fig tree that doesn't have fruit out of season? Like, that's weird. Um, the point here is that figs are a symbol for Israel. If I was to say to you, maple leaf, what country am I thinking of? Canada. If I say fig tree... I want you to think of Israel. That's because the fig tree is a really important symbol for Israel in the Old Testament. This is how the prophet Hosea describes it in chapter 9. Uh, God says through the prophet Isaiah, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. It's a really good thing, by the way. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. But we also read this. Further on in chapter 9, go to the next slide. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. That's shorthand for the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. You see, on one hand, the image of a fig tree before its season is a sign of faithfulness in God's people. And on the other, the image of a fruitless tree is an image of sinful Israel who will be judged by God. So friends, don't feel bad for the fig tree. I mean, it doesn't have any feelings. But Jesus, in knowing that he was hungry, uses this fig tree, Mark 11, as a teachable moment. It's an object lesson. It's an acted parable. Jesus curses the fig tree in order to teach a spiritual lesson of warning that those who don't bear fruit will be judged and cursed by God. Uh, before I went to Bible college, my wife and I had two fruit trees in our backyard. Uh, that's not a photo of the actual fig trees. Sorry, the fruit trees. I couldn't find an actual photo, but that will get you something to look at. Um, both of them were lemon trees. 
They were both five foot high. They both had leaves, but one of them was dying on the inside. Do you know how I could tell which one was dead and which one was alive? Because of the fruit. You see, the one that was alive bore these lemons the size of cricket balls, and my wife Mel would make these amazing lemon meringue pies. That's another story. But the one that was dead inside had no fruit. And this is at the heart of Jesus' image with the fig tree. You see, in Jerusalem, there are lots of impressive things. There's lots of, there's leafy crowds, there's the leafy tree, there's a leafy looking temple. There's things that you would expect to find fruit, but all of these things are external religion. It's really flashy religion, but does it lead to any change? Does it lead to change in their hearts? You see, Jesus, Jesus sees things not as man sees them, but as God sees them, as they truly are. Jesus looks to the heart of a person. So when Jesus goes to the temple, he's not looking for impressive things. He's looking for the fruit of hearts that trust God. So what does Jesus find in that temple? Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So, the next slide. The temple in the first century was this glorious building that people from all around the ancient world would come and look at. It was glorious. It was about 15 hectares of sandstone, marble, gold, and jewels. If we go to the next slide, you could break it down into four concentric squares. Let's go squares. Um, the court, uh, the yellow bits, that's the, the outside, that's the court of the nations. That's for all the people who weren't Jewish, they could go there. Uh, the next one in, the green one, is the court of the Jewish women. Then the orange one, the next one is, is the court of the Jewish men. And the middle one is the most important one. That red one is the Holy of Holies. That is, that's the place where that was believed that God dwelt with his people. You see, the temple is not just a place to go and worship God. It's this beautiful image of inclusion. That is, as God's people who were to be a blessing to the nations, the nations were involved and included in God's temple. They had a place to worship. They had a place to give sacrifices. They had a place to pray. But as Jesus, God's king, comes to his temple, he hates what he sees because it's not living up to this vision. Now, at first glance, it looks like he's driving out corruption. So he drives out people who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables. Um, It seems like his aim is to reform the temple or purify the temple or restore the purity of its worship. But Jesus isn't restoring here. He's bringing it to an end. You see, the problem is not the temple. The problem is not the law. The problem is not the sacrificial system. It is the leaders of the temple and their sinful hearts. You see, they have all this flashy religion around them, but it hasn't caused any internal change. There's no fruit. And so verse 17, as he taught them, that's Jesus, he said, is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Since the temple bears no fruit, Jesus preaches a word of judgment from Jeremiah chapter 7. 
It'll come up on the screen. The word of judgment was against Israel's leaders for thinking that God would never judge them. They had thought that because they had the temple, they could do whatever they liked. So, Because God would never destroy his house no matter what, no matter how much his people sin. Therefore, the temple in their eyes is become this den or safe house for robbers. It's their fail-safe. It's their get-out-of-jail-free card. It's their fire insurance against eternity. And so Jesus says to the leaders and the people, this is what you have become. There's no fruit in this temple anymore. And how do they respond? Verse 18, they look for a way to kill Jesus. See, all through Mark's gospel, the religious leaders, there's been this tension with Jesus. They've tried to trick him up. They've tried to, um, they've, they've been against him. They've tried to draw the crowds away from Jesus. But here, in chapter 11, is one of the first times where there is a definitive plan to kill Jesus. You see, this moment in the temple will set off a chain reaction within the hearts of evil men that God the Father will use to send his son to the cross. But Jesus is still God's king. Um, Just this week, my wife reminded me of a terrible reality TV show I used to watch called Undercover Boss. There should be a slide. It involves the CEO of a multi-million dollar company getting dressed in a really bad disguise uh, and then getting an entry-level job in a company they own so they could see how the whole thing is running. Um, The best episodes, and there weren't many, the best episodes were um, when the uh, CEO, who still has all this authority, right, um, when he kind of reveals who he truly is. So picture this, the CEO of a multi-million dollar company is working with, you know, one of their entry-level workers, and then the employee badmouths the company, he breaks one of the rules, and then the undercover boss just goes off. He reveals who he is, he fires the person on the spot, and in Mark chapter 11, Jesus in the temple is having one of these moments. Jesus, as God's king, is judging the temple and he is bringing it to an end. The temple, when Jesus is finished with it, will no longer serve its purpose. It will no longer be a place of prayer. It will no longer be the place where sacrifices are accepted by God and be no longer a place where the blessings of God may be experienced by the nations. I guess the big question there is, how can people be forgiven of their sin? If Jesus has judged the temple and is going to bring an end to it, how will people be forgiven? This brings us to our third point. God's king offers forgiveness. Um, Have a look at verse 20 with me. So this is the next day. Verse 20. In the morning as they went along, that's Jesus and the disciples again, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. You see, this fig tree helps us to understand what has happened in the temple and now the temple will help us understand what's the deal with the fig tree. See, remember, the fig tree had no fruit. Jesus cursed it. And now it has withered and died. 
It's been brought to an end. And with Jesus' words of judgment in the temple, he too will bring it to an end. And he brings it to an end with his death on the cross. You see, Jesus doesn't want to purify the temple. He doesn't want to restore it to its former glory. He brings it to an end. Forgiveness is no longer found in this temple, but in the death of Jesus on the cross. I think we see this most clearly at the end of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 15. Uh, slide should come up. We read this. This is at the point of Jesus' death. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. If you remember those four concentric squares in the temple, that middle one, the Holy of Holies, was where it was believed that God would physically dwell with his people. But there was this massive curtain in front of it. Think of it, stage curtain, but bigger. A stage curtain, a series of curtains that was a foot deep and that was 12 feet high. Okay? Well, okay, so twice of me, right? Okay, a bit more, okay? It was this big sign that said God is a holy God and you can only come to him on his terms. And so those terms was the temple sacrifices, uh, meeting with God's people in the temple. But at the death of Jesus on the cross, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. You see, the presence of God is no longer in this temple. It's It's not even contained in there. That is, access to God is freely given through Jesus' death on the cross. You see, when Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, he was paying the penalty for our sin. It was the sinless Son of God dying for sinners like you and me so that when we believe in Jesus and repent of our sins, God can freely forgive us of our sins because the punishment has already been taken. And so Jesus in his death on the cross, Jesus with his death on the cross doesn't set up an additional way to God. He doesn't set up temple plus cross. He doesn't even set up a way for the nations. Like it's not like, okay, Jews, you can keep using the temple, but all the other nations, you can use Jesus. In his death on the cross, he makes the one and for all time sacrifice for sin which means that he's the only way to God for anyone. This means we don't need to go to an impressive building or a sacred space to find God because we find God in Jesus Christ. This means we don't need a priest or religious rites to connect with God because we connect with God through Jesus Christ. We don't need to say a certain number of prayers or sing the right songs to connect with God either. We connect with God through faith in Jesus Christ. A friend of mine from America, Denise, she grew up going to church uh, and then in her mid-20s she moved to Australia. Every Sunday night when she lived in Australia, her mother would call her from home back in America and she would say, Denise, have you done your duty this week? Do you know what that means? Have you been to church this week? Because that's your religious duty. You see, Denise grew up in a family that went to church every single week. They did the religious thing. They went to church, they listened to the priest, they said their prayers, but she didn't feel any closeness with God. 
That's because those things were just external religious duty. It wasn't until one of her friends, who's also a Christian, gave her a Bible and said, read this for yourself. And so she read the Gospel of Mark cover to cover. And as she read it, she realized that she didn't need this flashy religion. She didn't need the building. She didn't need the priests because she can know God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's because religion says, trust in what you do. And Jesus says, trust in what I have already done. Religion says, sorry, religion seeks to change the outside to make you acceptable before God, and it fails. But Jesus changes the inside. He forgives us of our sin and makes us acceptable for God. Religion seems flashy. It doesn't lead to any lasting fruit. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who changes us so that we may be acceptable to God. He changes us from the inside, and that fruit lasts for eternity. I guess as we come to the end of chapter 11, or our section in chapter 11, the the big question is, what does this mean for us? Because Jesus is God's king. He is God's judge. If you have faith in Jesus, he's your king too. In fact, he's the king of the whole world. But what do these events in first century Jerusalem mean for us today in orange? Well, if I could go back to my first question. This is not a temple, but if Jesus came to church, what would he say to you? What would he look for? Tonight, we've seen that Jesus doesn't want flashy religion. He doesn't want the external things that mean nothing. He wants fruitful disciples. You see, it's easy for us to wag our fingers at Israel and the Pharisees and all the religious leaders, but we too can focus on the flashy external religious things as well. And so uh, maybe for you it's it's the piety, it's the cathedrals, it's the prayers. Or down the other end, it might be the large crowds, the, the spiritual experience, the pumping band. But that is this flashy external religion. And Jesus looks for fruitful disciples. So what does it mean to be a fruitful disciple? I think Jesus finishes our last our reading um, by explaining that. So have a look at verse 22. I want to say two things. Uh, first, uh, being a fruitful disciple of Jesus, in chapter 11 at least, looks like prayerful dependence on God. Have a look at verse 22. He says, have faith in God. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now these passages are often used in isolation to teach general things about prayer. People might say, um, if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain. Or they might say, um, if you have enough faith, you can name it and claim it with your prayers. But Jesus isn't speaking generally about prayer here. What's the context? Verse 22, have faith in God. Jesus is teaching here what the fruit of faith looks like. That is, 
prayerful dependence on God. And it's not the power of our faith that might grant us anything, but it rather is the power of the one that we pray to. And so there's an encouragement there that for those who have faith in Jesus, for those who are prayerful, who pray to God, that we should be growing in our dependence on God. I mean, maybe this week, as we head towards Good Friday, maybe you could take this week to pray that God would help grow your dependence on him. A great way to do that is through our reading booklet, a daily reading each day as you follow Jesus to the cross. Uh, second thing, the fruit, um, fruit of faith is uh, forgiving others as Jesus has forgiven us. Have a look at verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against one, anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. Uh, Jesus is not speaking about conditional forgiveness here. And Jesus is not saying that forgiveness is a virtue that, we might, um, that might grant us um, eternal life or make us good enough for God, but rather those who have been forgiven of their sins by God and have their heart transformed that they are to be people who forgive others, to forgive others as God has forgiven us. Not as some sort of external, flashy show of religion or how good we are, but rather that this would be the fruit of faith. So let's finish up. In Mark 11, we see that Jesus is God's judge, but he doesn't want flashy religion. He wants fruitful disciples. We see that he judges the temple because it bears no fruit. We see that Jesus ends the ministry of the temple and replaces it with himself in his death and resurrection. And then Jesus looks for fruitful disciples, that is, the fruit of faith. And in this chapter, it's prayerful dependence on God and forgiving others as they have been forgiven. It's not the flashy car. It's not the sound system. It's not the sunroof. It's fruitfulness.